Welcome to the Sense of Soul podcast. We are your hosts, Shannon and Mandy. Grab your coffee, open your mind, heart, and soul. It's time to awaken. Today we have with us the Rabbi Harry Rosenberg. He is spreading his light onto nations by unveiling academic programs about the lost tribes of the Israelites. Rabbi Harry is the founder of Partners in Israel and is a direct descendant of one of the greatest Jewish sages of the last 2,000 years. As a teenager, Harry had a vivid vision about returning to Israel and owning a piece of the Holy Land, which he has now done. He is an outspoken advocate for Jews in Israel, regardless of their identity or background, with the desire to open people's eyes to the truth, that we are in a generation where the ancient prophecies are being fulfilled. His controversial lecture about the biblical prophecy concerning the return of the lost tribes of Israel has received over 1 million views and led to numerous debates with radically opposed leaders. He is a co-founder of Lost Tribes Beverage and Theological Research Institute and the co-founder of iTribe, the social network mapping out the lost tribes of Israel. It is our pleasure to welcome Rabbi Harry Rosenberg to Sense of Soul. Wow, that was a really humbling introduction. Thank you so much. Shalom. (laughs) We're super excited. We've been doing a lot of research on you and listening to a lot of your talks and reading a lot about the 12 tribes or the 10 tribes or however many freaking tribes. (laughs) (laughs) But we want to learn. You are very knowledgeable. So it's a pleasure. You're going to have to really teach Mandy and I a lot about this. Yeah, I just get definitely a a story that needs to be told. And I don't even know if you would call it a story. It almost seems like facts. (laughs) How would you describe it? It's definitely the convergence of the past and the present, a little bit of the future. It's kind of for certain that there's something very ancient present in what we're going to discuss because of the chain that I'm representing. I mean, it is a story for sure, but it's a story based on something that we believe has happened. So when did you start this journey? Like what led you down the rabbit hole to uncover these lost tribes? So basically, um, I definitely grew up a regular American type of human, you know, chicken nuggets, french fries, going to action park, all the fun things America had to offer. All the way into my teenage years, you know, hanging out with friends and going out and partying. I wasn't really so connected to my history or my roots, but I do recall a transitional moment where I was in college, you know, partying with friends and, you know, kind of hit me all the emptiness that was going around me, all the vanity. And something clicked in my mind where I said, you know, there's something more out there and I want to reconnect to it. So I kind of dropped everything what I was doing. This was, um, you know, around 18 years old or so at the time. I messaged everyone I knew, all the girls, all the guys, say, listen, I'm cashing out for a few years. I'll circle back with you guys. And I went to Israel. And in Israel, they have what's called a yeshiva, which is in, like, I would say, the do- like a dojo where you go to become a, like a, a monk Jedi warrior. This is a yeshiva, it's like a, a dojo for the study of Torah and spirituality. The yeshiva is like a thousands of year old system of study. So they have yeshivas in America, but the yeshivas in Israel where you're able to immerse yourself a little more. So I spent a few years in yeshiva and then I actually ended up going to yeshiva in Tzfat, 
which is a mystical city in Israel where you kind of live and learn in a cave. So I spent um, many years also in the cave studying Torah. So I would say collectively to get to where I am right now, I had to spend, you know, a good five to seven years immersed in study, totally disconnected from the world around me, you know, no, nothing to do with chicken nuggets or french fries anymore, just, uh, just the study life. And then when I was done with that, I kind of like, where do you find yourself? Are you in this, you know, mystical state where you go live by a river and live in a state of meditation for the rest of your life? Or do you go back to where you came from and get your hands dirty and go, you know, and, and interact with everyone that you were once interacting with, but on this different position where you could have different conversations. So that's what, that's what I did. And uh, I found myself going on quite an incredible journey from all that. Okay. So I have to back up a cave. Like what kind of cave are we talking about here? Right, so Tzfat is an ancient city in the mountains of Israel, and there's currently, I know most people think that Jewish people came back to Israel with the Zionist uh, revolution, which I was, I'm not a Zionist, I'm, a, I'm not a modern anything, I, all my beliefs tie from ancient systems, so, but the city of Tzfat had Jews living in there since the 1400s, uh, really prior to that, for the last 2000 years, but in the 1400s something happened when the Sephardic Inquisition happened from Spain, where Jews fled from all, all throughout Europe fleeing the Inquisition, somehow the freaks, the, the Kabbalists, the deepest thinkers, like the wizards from all different parts of Europe somehow all congregated in a five to 10 year period in this little city called Sfat in the northern part of Israel. So it's known as the mystical spiritual city of Israel. When tourists come to Israel and they want a spiritual experience, they go to this city. It's like a little village mountaintop, a little old roads. It's, you know, so these sages got there in the 1400s and they codified all the spiritual information. They wrote it down. And ever since then, there's been this schools of mystical thought that secretly study and uh, dwell there. There are normal places to live there with like bedrooms and showers, et cetera. But the yeshiva I was in happened to just have been in one of the caves over there, the ancient caves. So, you know, literally the walls, I'm sleeping. There, there was a bed in there. We put a bed, but I was just in a cave. That was it. What was their spiritual experience looking like? They were looking for transcendence to break out of themselves, to experience something beyond. You know, what I find is interesting is that, you know, other cultures around the world go into caves for like this period of time and meditate. No, some of them stay in there for like a month or something until they're awakened. For certain, there's no question about there's a common core uh, truth between all these cultures. Part of my research is actually tracing the spiritual information from five, 4,000 years ago and how it got to the Mayans and the Aztecs and how it got to the Buddhists and the Japanese and trying to weave together the common core narrative of humanity of like, what are we really after? that all yeah. these different religions are touching on. You did an interview with a gentleman, I saw it on Facebook, about psychedelics. And part of that interview, he talked about how the book, half of it you can understand, the half of it is in the secrets of the world, and that you can only understand that half if you understand nature. So I thought that was interesting because we were just talking about how a lot of these people go to nature for that spiritual awakening. Wow, great point. Um, I, his name is Dr. Gerald Schroeder. He's got a YouTube video on like understanding God through science in five minutes and has millions of views. It's really cool. When the Moses had the revelation at Sinai, which was when God basically communicated to the people of Israel in front of 600,000 humans. So it was, it was the only revelation in the history of all religions that was a, what we call a public revelation, meaning with you have Jesus and Muhammad and the Buddha and all other religions, it was an internal revelation that they had from the creator, from the source. So this revelation we teach was in front of 600,000 people that had the same experience at the same time. 
and that's when the Torah was given. But the Torah, let's, it's like a microchip. It looks like just a story, but there's really 70 layers to the Torah of code. So when someone looks at the Torah, you can extract unbelievable information about the world of the maths and the sciences and the psyche and the brain and the whole history of the soul. It's all embedded in there. Most of it is secret underground school, so it's not just easily available. But one of the teachings we have in the Torah is that in the future, anything I will be able to say spiritually in the spiritual realm will have a scientific, physical counterpart to it. There will be a total merging between the spiritual realms and the physical realm. So I'm not so much into the metaphysics. I just think we, we've lost the science to understand some of this stuff. Well, what I thought was interesting in that interview is how you talk about how they use this wood from the Akasha tree, is that what it was, yeah. to make smoke into this cave. And they would actually hallucinate and then write all these things down when did that start? I mean, is a lot of the stories in the Bible possibly just like hallucinations? We're going to discuss something so fascinating right now. To me, at least, I'm fascinated by this stuff. Let's look at the, the creation narrative in the Bible, right? We have seven days of creation, and each day there's something else created. So what do we have created on the first day of the creation? Like, what was the first thing that was created? It was, light. yes, it was light. It was this light that was created. And then we see on the, on the fourth day, the sun and the moon were created. So all of a sudden, we're going to have to ask the question, what was this light if it wasn't the sun? So now we're, we, we could dive into the scripture. We don't have all the time that it would take the years source. to really go through it. But yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to consolidate it. But basically, this was the light of the mind that Adam and Eve were experiencing. There was a light inside of their mind that they were experiencing which we teach, allowed them to see from one end of the world to the next. It was this unbelievable spiritual state of ecstasy that they didn't have to be outside of their body. They were inside of their body. And for all we know, if I, if I would speculate, they could have stayed in there for thousands of years in a meditative hibernative state in this wonderful space of ecstasy. What we do know is Adam and Eve, this quote unquote sin, which was not really a sin at all um, when we really learn about it, it, God doesn't say, um, if you eat from the apple, you will die. He says, when you do. So it was, there was an evolution that was, that was part of the storyline that this would happen. But basically, that light gets taken away from him, gets sucked up into the earth. And so when you ask me, like, what's the history of getting higher psychedelics and religion to people, it started off endogenously inside of our brains. It wasn't we didn't need to interact with plants or inhale or inject anything to have an elevated mystical experience. Our brain has that technology on its own to do it for us. Agreed. Um, we know for sure because the, the DMT, the dimethyltryptamine chemicals flowing throughout our body as we speak and it happens to now also be flowing throughout plants of the world. So when we teach that the light of his brain was sucked into the earth and went into the plants of the world, now all of a sudden we have a storyline. And now you see that the whole really religion of the ancient people of Israel revolved around rectifying this original sin of Adam and Eve, quote unquote, by basically sticking one man in a room one day, once a year, a small room where it's completely filled with clouds of smoke. According to Jewish law, he's not allowed to leave that room until it's completely filled with smoke. And in that he's rectifying the sin of Adam and Eve. So when we just press pause for a second, like what's going on here? Yeah. Like, why is this religion really about fixing an ancient sin by standing in a room full of plant smoke? And what I think it has to do is when you fix, when you rectify a sin, like this is a common term in Kabbalah and spiritual, spiritual terminology, is rectifying the sin of Adam and Eve. When you're rectifying the sin of Adam and Eve, remember what I said, everything spiritual will have a scientific counterpart. 
let's try to redefine that as erasing trauma stored on the neurological pathway of humanity from ancestral trauma. Right? Yeah, killing so ancestor, you that's crazy. Right, because if I have an ancestor who did something evil or a sin or something yes. wicked, he puts that stamp on the genetic code and I inherit part of that and that messes with my chill, quote unquote, or who I am as a human being. So when we're sticking a man in a room to rectify that sin, basically on a scientific level, he's consuming plant earth chemicals that were A, once endogenously produced in our brain, and B, have a known effect today in science to erase trauma stored on the neurological network. So he's going in there getting this clean slate. So we're looking at this like picture, like, oh, God's in heaven with his notebook, you know, uh, writing down, okay, clean slate, you did the prayer, you're good. It's like, no, this is all happening in the brain. This is all science. And, and all that's really standing for is going back and kind of healing your ancestry, healing what's within you through your lineage. It's just using it as a metaphor. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a blow to my ego when I realized I am not my own individual, disconnected from anything that happened before me, whether yeah. I wanted to or not. I was like, no, I am unfortunately or fortunately, there was thousands of years of history that led to me and there was yes. thoughts and brains and efforts and hustles and like, I have to somehow connect to that to go forward. And yeah. I'm not like this own like guy who, you know, independent right. of that. So what did you find out about your ancestors? Do you ever do a DNA test? Not so crazy you ask. My mother did do a DNA test, but we didn't really have to. I'm actually part of a family with a family tree. And I'll explain that for a second. My family tree goes back 3000 years. So basically I could list every member of my family 3000 years with a current Wikipedia page, with a bio, with who this individual was and where they were. I'm on a chain of sages, which I'll explain it to you. Um, nothing to do with me. I'm just a regular American, but I just got born into this. So I'm not trying to toot my own horn here. This is just what happens. So there was a great sage in the 16, 1700s named Rabbi Eliyahu Kramer. They call him the Vilna Gaon, the genius from Vilna. And he was a master of all the sciences, of the mathematics. He, he knew the whole Torah backwards and forwards by heart. By the age of eight, he was giving lectures to, you know, grown men, of, you know, with beards. He Sounds like Jesus. Right. Um, well, Jesus was part of this, supposedly part of this line of specific sages. The brain is just on another level because of this training that some of these guys have. So you have this rabbi, the Vilna Don, or Rabbi Eliyahu Kramer. He's a, you could read about him online. He's got very interesting things. So he was from the house of David, from the line of King David, which traced back generation to generation. And my family traces back to him. And we have a family tree and his books that publish all the people who are descended of him. It's like, you know, 600 page book, tens of thousands of uh, families who are descended of this one rabbi from a few hundred years ago. And uh, the crazy thing was, I didn't always know that my family was connected to him. My grandfather had done all the research and put all the tombs together, but I didn't really care about that stuff ever. But uh, I didn't find out about that until after I had already had a spiritual awakening and got really interested in this topic of the lost tribes of Israel, which we're going to discuss. But then afterwards, I learned that this age, Rabbi Eliyahu Kramer, his students like were instructed by him to find the lost tribes of Israel. So somewhere genetically in my genetic makeup is this uh, desire to search for this these people. And so when it hit me, I was just like, Okay, so like that makes sense. Like I'm just gonna keep this person's journey alive. Like when he was about to die, he was probably saying to himself, "I'm not going anywhere. Like I, we're like it's gonna be a different body, but we're still here." 
That's exactly what I feel like my purpose is. But we should be worthy that when you leave, uh, in Hebrew, the word is a roshim, you leave an impression on your genetic, on your soul, on you leave such an impression that it, it overcomes the chicken nugget and it overcomes the sauce because a lot of people have this dormant voice inside of them, their higher being and who they can be and who their, what their purpose is, but it's really hard to get out of the muck. How do we connect with the DMT unless you die like Mandy or take, you know, some ayahuasca or deep, deep meditation? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I do believe we've lost a lot of technology. You know, I'm sure there's a way that if we breathed right and meditated right and did some right tinkerings with our mind, the body, we could easily just enter that phase, but we've been locked out of it. There's locks in our mind that it's completely shut. Think that happened over time. You think people were just more open probably? Almost. Yeah, it definitely happened over time because we do teach that the prophets of Israel, there used to be prophets prophesizing. We do teach that they were using a part of their brain. It was a scientific matter. The Rambam says Maimonides teaches about it. There was a dream state that they would enter, basically. We know in the dream state, actually, you're secreting large amounts of DMT. So when the Talmud says that prophecy is one-sixtieth of sleep, of dreaming, then you see that there's actually a connection between the two. So I, I think for sure that there's something there, this level of revelation. But And at the time of Adam, I believe it was completely lost. But you do see prophets over the last thousands of years. But we do see it slowly dwindled and dwindled where we became more reptilian. There's two types of humans. There's humans who are okay being locked out of their mind. They could survive it. They could say, listen, I could do my nine to five. Going to just, uh, I'm not, I'm content, you know, I'm okay. And I'm going to. And I believe in this revelation stuff. And one day there'll be a great light and we'll discuss that great light when we all end up back. But I'm yeah. okay here now. And then there's another group of people who are saying, wait a minute, are you telling me there's locks in my brain and there's keys found throughout the earth and these different plants with these different recipes yeah. and tribes that have been held for thousands of years? By gosh, I'm going to unlock some parts of my brain and see what the heck's inside of my mind. Terrence McKenna, the great thinker said, humans today have a moral obligation to, to unlock those parts of their brain, journey onto that side, collect precious thoughts and information and try to bring it back to liberate humanity. What you're saying is it's not on everyone to have to go to the other side and read some data from the cosmos. It's already too late. I mean, that information already started leaking in in the 1960s, et cetera, which brought a lot of peace and love into the world. But we're, we're waiting on someone to, to bring back something that'll help save everyone else. So I'm, I don't go around telling people, hey, if you want to be religious or spiritual, connect to God, you got to take XYZ plans. Like, whoa, that's horrible. If I do, you know, that, that'd be like scary to mess with people's lives. But, you know, if I do have a friend who's, you know, who's going to die from an overdose, I'm like, you know, you got to take this plant and, re and reset some of your things, you know, and get healthy. So it's for different people and it's a big mystery. But um, I think we're just, it's the emergence of this. We're still new in it. It's all just still coming out now for humans. Yeah. I thought it was amazing in that interview with that guy but you said something about the pinea or something meant the face of God. Oh, sure. In Hebrew, the word pine is face yeah. and el is God. Pinea, face of God. That's pretty freaking cool. Well, I guess it's almost crazy. We could spend hours on this stuff. That's amazing. It really gets, uh, amazing. It gets crazy. Yeah. Amazing. In the story of the Torah, Jacob is actually fighting an angel in the story of the Torah. He's wrestling with an angel in the, in the scripture. And when he, he wins and when, he's, when he beats the angel is actually when he gets called Israel and he names the place that he fought the angel, he names it Peniel in the Torah. 
So it's like, and, and we teach it was a metaphysical battle. It wasn't, we, we, we don't teach it was a real battle with an angel. It was happening in the spiritual realm. It's, I'll say it in Hebrew than English, Ki ra'iti Adonai panim panim, because I saw God face to face. That's what he says. Wow. What do you believe as far as the difference between soul, brain, conscious? So the name for a human is Adam, which is uh, the name for a human. So Adam is made up of two words, like Adam. Adam is Hebrew Aleph and Dam, which is soul and blood. So we're all body and we're all soul. So I'm not a, I'm not just a soul. Oh, I'm not just I love a body. that too. We're, we're a combo okay. of the two. From what I was taught is the seat of the soul is in the brain. And here's something fascinating that I learned that blew my mind into pieces. What is the location where Adam and Eve were located? Garden of Eden. <laughs> exactly. So in Hebrew, the word Garden of Eden would be Gan Eden. Gan is garden and Eden is Eden. Gan Eden. And we're taught by the sages and, and the most recent sage was called the Kedushat Levi, Rabbi Levi Yitzhak Mebartichov. He taught based on what he was taught, based on what he was taught all the way back to Moses, was that Gan Eden, Garden of Eden is two different words in two different locations. It's not the Garden of Eden. There's wow. The garden, exactly. There's the Garden and then there's Eden. Wait, have y'all always known this? The, the Jewish people have, but I, but I would say 90-something percent of the Jewish people have no clue what their ancestors has even taught. We're, we're an exiled nation who's just on survival mode right now. So most of the secret schools of information amongst the Jewish people aren't, the Jewish people aren't aware of. It's Like it's the, the Christians. Of, yeah, 100%. It's the schools of Kabbalists and, traditional, and tradition that pass this information along. But uh, people who would like to learn more and look at sources, I personally... The way I'm, I was taught, I'm not really allowed to say much without a source. So I have to say who taught me this. You know, I'll let you know if it's something that I speculated or I thought of on my own. But most yeah. of the things I'm going to say is this is what the transmission was. And this is the source for it. Is that like some Illuminati stuff? Well, no, it's that it would be the exact opposite of it because, you know, and they do, and, and my school of thought definitely does speak about the Illuminati and like, that's a whole nother conversation to be like the flip side of the Illuminati. This would be like the holy, like secret group of guys who passed on information from student to teacher. Harry, so why I'll would they you, share that wisdom though? Such a good question. Such a good question. I got to take notes. So basically, do you guys know about the Bitcoin or the blockchain? I'll just explain it in like 30 seconds. The Bitcoin and the blockchain is so successful today, so trusted and growing so much is because it's a decentralized network of people that approve what's happened. So basically there's no centralized location. If I make a transaction, everyone in the world has to agree that that happened for it to be recorded and actually happen. Okay. It's a network of almost, let's say, volunteers around the world who unanimously agree. If one person tries to say, hey, this transaction happened and no one else saw it or says, yeah, it gets deleted, yeah. doesn't make it. When a transaction gets verified, it becomes called a block. You can never change it or erase it. It's there forever. And the whole world agreed that that happened and it becomes there forever. That's why it's called the, block uh, the blockchain. It's a chain of blocks of confirmations of transactions of money. So basically the Jewish way of passing down information was the same exact thing where every generation, there's a transmission of what Moses taught. We will now teach it to the next generation. And if mm -hmm. one person teaches something that everyone else in the generation didn't agree with or didn't hear from their transmission, that was deleted and not passed down. So we have a system of- So you're evolving. It definitely evolves. Not only does it, it has it evolved, but it, it evolved in a way where we've compiled all the evolutions into one text where you have in the middle, every generation, like you build around it and there's like bold where you're like referencing text it's the study of torah is, is the most mind-boggling it's like when, I, when you're studying torah it's like chess on steroids you're in the most intellectual pursuit you could ever possibly imagine oh. 
very stimulating. When I say this rabbi taught this, he wouldn't be able to say that unless the whole entire generation peer reviewed it and verified that information. And so when I reference someone from the 1300s or from the year 800, he was peer reviewed and verified. And I could list many individuals who weren't just asking me, why isn't this information public? A lot of the, the depth of this information is somewhat dangerous for the intellect. But the core of the Kabbalistic teachings is when this situation happened with Adam and Eve, when the light was hidden into the earth, basically holiness was now hidden in the darkness. Where there was what would look like sin and evil, where it would not look to be holy, was where holiness is found, where the light is hiding. Quick example of this, most people don't realize in the Bible, when you have a question, it's usually your answer. So we have to just look at it that way. Let's look at a story in the Bible where Lot is in the town of Sodom and Gomorrah, where a lot of evil going on there. So God comes and he rains brimstone down and he destroys the town. Lot is the only one who flees and he flees with his two daughters. They go to this mountaintop and his two daughters, they basically think they're the last people alive on the planet. They get their father drunk with wine and they seduce him one night after the next. And from this, oh my God. Yeah, well, they thought there was, that was it, basically, you know. From this seduction comes two nations, the Moabites and the Ammonites, two major nations of ancient of the ancient times. And the Moabites actually in Hebrew means Ma'av, from my father. Like they're the Moabite nation means from my father. But something crazy happens because later on in history, the Moabites has someone named Ruth. Ruth ends up converting and marrying an Israelite. And from this relationship comes forth the line of King David. And from mm -hmm. King David comes the Messiah the redeemer of Israel, the redeemer of the world. So you have to say, whoa, are you trying to tell me the Messiah, the Holy of Holies, our great savior of humanity is born from an incestuous relationship? Like what's going on there? Anytime you have a question, it's an answer. So the answer is it must have been that it had to have been born from an incestuous relationship. Now we have to understand why. And this goes back to the main theory of there is holiness dormant in hidden places. And if you want to know the answer why, is because there's a force out there for it. Holiness can't survive on, you know, so easily. There is a force that consumes light and consumes holiness. You know, when I was a younger kid, I learned the hard way. If people don't have and you have, they want to take it from you. They're jealous of you. The nature of the animalistic human survival is take what someone else has if you don't have it or be jealous of them. So whatever this light is, the light of Adam and Eve that got hidden at the time of his sin, the mission of humanity was to get from Adam to the last man with that light being hidden every generation. So the whole story of the Torah really is discussing how that light is woven throughout history, hidden in different situations. So that story I told you about incest, that's one of a handful of really strange stories in the Torah yeah, of how no, this light was passed on. Another example is the story of Yehuda with Judah, which is also on the line of King David. He gives forth King David and the Messiah. He was walking along the road one day and there was a woman named Tamar and she was supposed to be married into his family and he wasn't going with it because she already married two of his sons and they both died like strange deaths. But she was waiting to get back in the family and he wasn't having it. So what she do? She dresses up as a prostitute, as a harlot. She waits on the side of the road. This guy Judah comes and he's like, something came over him. He ends up wanting to engage her. He doesn't have money. So she says, okay, give me your staff and then we can, you know, it'll be collateral. You come back with the money later, you know? So they have intimacy. And then he goes back the next day and she's not there anymore. He's like, oh, where'd she go? And I was like, there was never a prostitute here. This is not a place for prostitutes. 
later on the town finds her pregnant and they're like whoa you got pregnant you were not allowed to get pregnant because you were supposed to marry into this family like so in ancient biblical times you're gonna have to get the death penalty the harlotry you can't do that and so she's about to get killed and then she says whoever stick this was and she shows his staff got me pregnant and so he's like whoa. whoa that was me my bad now he raises his hand <laughs> and that's but- it but from this relationship comes the Messiah, the savior of humanity. And this is, this is another story of many, many stories, how the, the transmission of this soul had to have been hidden because there was a force out there that would have confiscated the light had it been obvious that this where the light was. And the first story of the Torah, the Bible, actually teaches us. Do you guys know who was the first human to kill who? Who was the first murderer? Cain and Abel. Right. Why did Cain kill Abel? They both gave sacrifices. Cain, Abel's was accepted and Cain's wasn't. So everyone says jealousy, but that has nothing to do with it. You ever see The Matrix, the movie The Matrix? Yeah. Right. So there was just a scene where like, wherever these like good guys were, the bad guy was able to take over someone else's body to like fight them. Like anywhere they saw them, if they were visible, a bad guy could just come and take over someone's body. So basically there was this force out there in the universe that was looking to confiscate and swallow up holiness. And it didn't, and you can't know where it is without indicators. All of a sudden, there's a litmus test. There's two sacrifices. One is accepted. Oh, it must have been that that's where there's light. That's where there's holiness. And what happens when there's apparent light and apparent holiness? Boom, got killed, blotted out. Anywhere that there's apparent light or apparent holiness, there's going to be a force that's going to go against it. That's a, a rule of reality that we, that we live by. Through my own life experiences, I, I feel like my life validates that going through light. There's always that opposite energy. And most of my awakening has been found in darkness. So, I mean, I'm aligning it in my brain that way. Uh, it's definitely true. So the light of the Messiah, which is the, the greatest of lights, like the holiest of lights, that had to have been the most hidden of all the, of all the things. When it emerges, it'll be, we'll all be surprised because it wasn't, no one would have detected it. So that why is all this spiritual information hidden? Because it led to very strange cults and groups doing really strange things to get the light back. Oh yeah, you had sages of Israel, uh, most notably in the recent time, Shabtai Tzvi, it was a false messianic movement, it had hundreds of thousands of Jews and the Muslim world all shaken up believing he was the Messiah. But, you know, this is hundreds and hundreds of years ago, but they, he was having oh. orgies and in breaking Shabbat and breaking the laws and eating non-kosher. Why? He was like, oh, if the holiness is hidden in the low levels, we're going in there to get it and we're going to stay holy. So we're going to have a holy orgy. We're going to have an orgy for the <laughs> sake of, I'm not even kidding. This is what was going on. The Messiah is the light. Is that what you're saying? Is the light. When we go back to the light, we're really speaking about uh, dormant parts of your brain okay. being okay. reopened. It's the light being of the open. mind. Oh, wait, the Messiah okay. is someone whose brain will have awoken and will help other people figure out how to get back into their brain. That's all the Messiah is. You can call him a doctor if you'd like, um, yeah. but he, you know, a spiritual phenomenon helping us return. But most of the information yeah. we're discussing, this goes back to why you asked me why it's hidden because of how unspiritually mature we are to to hold some of these thoughts without leading to orgies. Okay. Oh yeah, for sure. Okay. So I have a question Um, because I loved how you you say that the redemption of humanity is when we all start using our dormant mind and get back to like Adam and Eve where they used a hundred percent of their mind. But if they were using a hundred percent of their mind, then why was the apple eaten? Oh, so great question. And this is also going to go into where we left off before with the Garden of Eden, the two different locations. So you have this place called the Garden, which was the physical location Adam was in. And then you have this place called Eden, 
which we are taught is a location in the brain where spirituality and the pleasure secretes from. So that would be the what we call the seat of the soul. Like if you're asking where the soul is, there would be a specific location that would have that ability to give us that soul. Wait, didn't the Old Testament and the Bible come from you guys? The whole entire thing is based off of uh, this ancient capital. Well, how come none of that great stuff is in it? Well, no, because you had the Council of Nicaea. You had a bunch of pagan Roman guys sitting there and taking all the information and editing it to fit their need to make them like the rulers over the stuff. So there is no real unbroken chain of Christian school of thought. It all got broken and redefined and rechewed and respit out. It's not a clean source uh, of information. It went through filtration processes. So, okay, Eden is a location which is in your brain. Is it the pineal gland or what, what do you... Uh, you know, as of now, that's the leading theory okay. that it would be because when we describe Adam entering into that space and dwelling in that space, we use terminology like he would see from one end of the world to the next. Um, we would use a lot of the, the language of seeing, visualization is, is very much identified with this light. And if we know the pineal gland, it's actually structured like an eyeball where it has a retina, cornea, rods, it's, it's photo, photosensitive, uh, light sensitive. So the pineal gland is literally, uh, has the body parts and the structure of an eyeball. So if, if there was this one part of my brain that contains the most psychedelic chemical known to humanity, and those same chemicals are found in the plant that the Israelites used in the, in the, in the biblical narrative, you know, there, there's just all this uh, chain of information that's leading up to trying to, like an elephant in the room, like, hey, this is what's happening. But... At the end of the day, I try not to say anything with 100% certainty, because that would be insane. But this is where we're at of just what's making sense to us. Wow. Okay. The pineal gland actually looks like a seed. It's like the size of like, let's say a rice, a rice kernel or something. Both sides symmetrical of like the apple and the seed in the middle. I was just exactly. thinking. It's, you have the left and the right is everything in the uh -huh. brain. And then all of a sudden you have this singular gland. But yeah, it, it, it scientifically actually has structures that the eyeball has, including the retina cornea and the rods of an eyeball. I mean, that blows my mind. If you look at ancient cultures and religions, that's what everything everyone's about. You look at ancient Egypt, they were all about that part of the brain. All their temples were built in ratio of the brain, and they were their holy of holies where, where the pineal glands would have been. If you, oh my you know, gosh. Take the eye of Horus, if, if you take the eye of Horus and you cut the brain in half and you juxtapose the eye of Horus to the brain, it actually is showing you what the brain, the eye of Horus is the, the half of brain where you see what the pineal glands is in the eye. So there must have been a legend, you know, the children of Adam and the children of Noah that became the world religions saying, hey, there was once a, a part of our brain that we had access to that we're locked out of. And uh -huh. all religions of the world are really just based on getting back into that part of the brain. The pineal gland, they say, looks just like a pine cone. Well, the pine cone is definitely an interesting thing of what's the connection between the pine cone and the whole thing. You do see the pine cone is mathematical. It's structured on the Fibonacci sequence, that spiral shape. So yeah. if you look at the pine cone and the sunflower and the solar system and a snail shell, these are all the stamps of, of something. This is like an artist gave his stamp on something. Pine cone's just been coming up in my life, like left and right, you know, uh -huh. and I'm like, okay. So I looked up the symbolism of the pine cone and it's human enlightenment. Oh, for sure. It's human enlightenment. And you look at the, <laughs> um, you know, you look at the Vatican today, they have uh, the court of the pine cone with a huge yeah. pine cone statue. The Pope has a staff with a pine cone on it. If you look at ancient uh, Babylonian inscriptions, you know, the high priests are, are holding pine cones. Wow, see all that synchronicity. 
Well, and Shanna, Shanna, do you remember those paintings we were studying a couple of weeks ago and the pine cones all over them? Oh, I thought those were pickles. <laughs> no, there were pickles too. Oh. <laughs> that was, that's the old Renaissance pictures of the Virgin Mary. Yes, yeah. it was. Should, I have a yeah. few questions as a Christian growing up many generations. Okay, so let me get this right. So Jesus is not the Messiah. Is that what you guys believe? Well, according to the law, the Messiah has things that he has to do. The Messiah has to do three things in particular. This is according to scripture. One is he has to unite the house of Israel, which we've spoken about this northern kingdom and southern kingdom, the Judeans and the children of Israel. He has to unite them. He has to bring world peace. And he has to build a temple in Jerusalem for all religions and all men, where all, everyone is equal to come and pray. And, but he has his own purpose. Christianity has a purpose. You know, I'm not downplaying uh, that purpose because it has a purpose. Right, a very big but, purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but at the at the end of the day, you know, that's where we that's where we leave. So we don't look at it as we're the chosen people, like we're better, we're elevated. It's like we were chosen to help everyone. So it's mm -hmm. like we we weren't chosen to be better than everyone. That is crazy. Yeah. We were chosen to help everyone. And guess what? That status of chosenness to be the helpers is available for anyone to join. It's not even an exclusive club. Anyone could yeah. want to be the helper. I would look at it as like a doctor. You know, a doctor goes to school and trains to be the helper on behalf of humanity. Is a doctor better than me socially? No. Is he funnier yeah. than me? No. And nothing. He is just choosing to dedicate his time to work on behalf of humanity. So when we yeah. say we're chosen, we've been chosen to help out humanity. All right. A few more questions. So in the book of Genesis, in the Bible, some angels came down and mated with some of Adam and Eve's daughters. Therefore, they created these hybrids. And according to the book of Enoch, it really kind of sounds like Noah may have been one. I just want to know your opinion on that. The conversation of the Nephilim is so beyond me and very okay. mystical and deep. But yeah. what we do know is that and there's two ways to look at it. One is like the metaphysical way of like angels breeding with humans. And the other way of, you know, we do know that there is Neanderthal DNA in humans. We know that there was a point where there was breeding between different species of, you know, humanoids. That's why I'm saying it's so beyond me because was this yeah. a storyline of humans breeding outside of like the spiritual human race? And that's where we learned power of might and war okay. and all this stuff like came into us from that and it's like a right. storyline yeah or was this yeah. actually some like type of angel it's an angel like a, right that's why i don't process metaphysically so much i everything i okay. see is from the lens of science in your torah doesn't it talk about angels archangel michael gabriel well yes it speaks about these revelations where you're like seeing something but most of the time it's in the dream state right there are a few examples where you do have like angels visiting Abraham and he gave them food and they sit down with him. Be able to explain how, how angels are breaking bread with Abraham yet from the scientific perspective because, you know, I'm on the pursuit now, so I haven't cracked that code yet. Okay. So let's jump into this journey to discover these tribes, these lost yeah, tribes. Who are the tribes? Who are the tribes and why are we looking for them? Okay, so basically, in a nutshell, the ancient people of Israel, why are we called Israel? Israel was another name for Jacob. And we know we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are the forefathers of the people of Israel. Abraham gave birth to Isaac. Isaac gave birth to Jacob. Jacob gets his name changed to Israel. 
And now anyone who comes from Jacob is called the children of Israel. That's, that's how the children of Israel formed. If you were a son of Jacob, which was another name for him was Israel, you were the children of Israel. He had 12 sons. Those became known as the 12 tribes of Israel. So when we have the 12 tribes of Israel, we have the 12 sons of, of Jacob. We have, you know, Judah, Levi, uh, you know, Naphtali, Zebulun, God, all these different names we can go through, Menash, um, Yosef. And we went to Egypt, which was a whole other thing we'll discuss because we were in Egypt basically to extract sparks of the light of the, of the soul that the Egyptians had held on to. That's a whole other Jedi mission we'll have to get to. We're in Egypt. We go into the desert. We have the Sinai revelation. We become a nation. Uh, we're spending 40 years in the desert basically in could be what would be considered a psychedelic uh, state of spirituality. Uh, we were eating the man in the desert, which was a food that fell from heaven, which some people speculate could have been ergot, which obviously is a psychoactive chemical. Whatever that is, we'll have to get into. We have a nation. We enter the land of Israel. We divide the land into 12 different parts. So the land of Israel, when you had King Solomon and King David and the temple of Israel, it was divided into 12 12 parts, I guess, like the 13 colonies, so to say. It was like the 12 colonies. Can you give me time so, frame? Yes. So we entered the land of Israel, let's say, approximately 3,000 uh, uh, years ago, around 1,000 BC, current era. We, okay. you know, we're out of Egypt, you know, get a little bit before maybe 1,100 or, uh, you know, in that time frame. And, you know, and then around, let's say, 900. Um, yeah, around a thousand years ago or so, we built the Temple of Solomon. The Temple of Solomon was the Holy Temple of Jerusalem, where the high priests of Israel were standing in that room of smoke that we had discussed. That was what we had done when we got to Israel, and that was when that temple got built. That temple was in the land of Judah, the tribes of Judah. Judah was one of the sons of Jacob. And anyone you know who's a Jew comes from that tribe of Judah. So there was a civil war, basically, where the tribes split in half where all the tribes of the north were like, you know what? We're not going to the temple of Judah anymore because the taxes are too high. We're making our own temple up here in the north. You know, there used to just be one temple for the people of Israel, the holy temple that King Solomon built. Taxes were too high. Ten tribes secede. They go like, we're, out, we're off the kingdom of Judah. You guys are now called Judea. We're now called the kingdom of Israel. And there was a total split. And the ten tribes of the north made their own temples, etc., and then about 722 before the Common Era, around 2,700 years ago, the Assyrians invaded Israel, the Assyrian army, the Assyrian kingdom, and they conquered the northern kingdom. They didn't attack the Judeans and didn't conquer the Judean kingdom. They went to the 10 tribes of the north. And as the Assyrians had done historically, they don't just kill people when they attack. They displace people. They move populations around the world. That was what they used to do back then. A, it was more economically feasible than, uh, than when you have an army and feeding soldiers and death and all this stuff to intimidate and relocate versus just murdering and then dealing with all that. And also the Assyrians used to do that to create human populations between them and the invading Mongolian Hun armies. So they would put people um, you know, on the border of the Huns and then they would have their whole empire. So if the Huns or the Mongolians would attack, it would hit these people first. That was the Assyrian strategy. So basically the Judeans were, from their perspective, the 10 tribes were exiled. They were sent to the Far East by the Assyrian army. And that was the last time they heard of them or saw them. And that's why we call them the lost tribes of Israel from the perspective of the tribes of Judah. Judah wasn't alone. We had another tribe with us called Levi. 
because he never had his own portion of land. He lived amongst all the other tribes because he was the priests and the educators, the quote unquote, the shaman, the guy who was taking spiritual responsibility for everyone else. So we had Judah, Levi, and some of Benjamin. Those were the three tribes that got together and now be called the Jews. So if you're Jewish or if you ever meet a Jewish person, they must come from that southern kingdom. There was no chance you'll find a Jew who's from the northern kingdom all the way until recent times, because in the ancient times of prophecy, they said in the future, before this light comes back to the brains, the tribes of Israel will reunite with the tribes of Judah. And when they reunite, it's the sign of the end times where the, where the light comes back. And now already we've identified around 100 million people around the world that, that identifies being the descendants of those missing tribes. But it's not 100 million people that are randomly scattered. They make up specific regions of the world where we knew they were sent to, who are practicing customs and traditions for 2,500 years um, you know, on history, on record. Um, you know, and most notably, I'm sure you've seen in my lectures, the Pashtun of Afghanistan. Who are, who are called the Graveyard of Empires. No one's a, been able to conquer Afghanistan. It's been the same people for 2,500 years. Their language, Pashto, is a 2,500-year-old language. They have all their customs and traditions are based off the law of Moses. You know, you have the same wow. exact thing. Yeah, they, they're doing strange things that you wouldn't see any tribe doing that only the people of the book of the Moses would do. Do they call themselves Jewish? Yeah, well, no. Jewish comes from the word Judah, right? That's okay. where we get the word okay, Jewish. So they're not from that. So what do so they, they would, them? Right. So a Pashtun, who's a Muslim Afghan Pashtun, would refer to himself as Bani Israel, the children of Israel. Um, wow. so, yeah, because I used to live in New York before I moved to Israel. So I'd be walking in the streets of Queens or Brooklyn, and I could tell who's a Pashtun based on his outfit. Um, so I'd walk by a Pashtun, and I'd say, um, hey, are you, are you from the tribes of Israel? And he'd be like, yeah, of course, you know, we, we know that, you know. I'd be like, yo, let's hug, let's bro out. And I'm like, wow, I can't believe me and these guys in Afghanistan, these supposed to be these radical Muslim Islamic guys out there, we're like, we're totally broing out. Wow. So you know of that one. So how many have, have you guys or have, has the world been able to locate? Well, we basically know where the major groups of them are. Uh, from Afghanistan, we could trace the footsteps of the lost tribes, um, you know, into, and first of all, we look at the, all the religions of the Silk Road, the major ones, you have um, Afghanistan, you have uh, the Pashtun, you have the Buddhists, and you have the Shinto of Japan. Oh, hold on really fast. Sorry. Yeah. What did you say? Did you call, you called it the Silk Road? Yeah. Okay. Silk Road. Okay. Oh, the Silk Road, it was the path that was forged just around the time the tribes of went into exile that connects Israel to, to basically Japan or to China. Okay. Um, so the three major, you know, Hinduism predates this. Hinduism was around before that, but otherwise you have Pashtun, Buddhism, and Shintoism, which is the 70 million religion of Japan, all founded within a hundred years of each other, all popped up out of nowhere. So right. historically in these locations, you had people that were offering their kids to the gods on mountaintops to appease their gods to get rain, you know, human sacrifice was common, all these things. And then the next thing you know, within 100 years of the tribes of Israel wandering out in this direction, they're talking about nirvana and uh, an ecstasy of the mind and et cetera, these thoughts and ideas, where did they come from? And this is, they took the bottle uh, called Moses and they slammed it on the ground, boom, and it shattered. And the, this information and this stuff went to four corners of the world around 2,500 years ago. 
So today we could identify the major nations that come from these individuals. There's still one secret group we're looking for, which is in a hidden location, which is like the last group we're supposed to find. Really? And so are people claiming to be them? No, you, it wouldn't be possible. They're called the Bnei Moshe, the children of Moses. Because um, if you look at the Bible, you actually see like line, lineage and ancestry is really important, but we don't see any lineage or ancestry with Moses. Like what happened to the family of Moses? And they're really not even mentioned and not even spoken about. And really? Yeah, we have like a son or two, but you know, later on, it's just when the time of King David and King Solomon, there's no like the family of Moses. You think they would be oh, like, yeah, you know. That's so strange, yeah. So just so you know, Shanna is the best detective on the world. She will find Moses's family. I will go and find that uh, other hear, hear me out. This is where we're going to go into. It gets a little crazy. But um, so these children of Moses, we believe that Moses, when after they entered the land of Israel and et cetera, he had trained his family to stay out of the limelight. Don't get involved in politics. Don't get involved in leadership, rulership. You stand aside and study the Torah and pass on the spiritual information in like your secret schools of thought. And that's what they did. And when the destruction of Israel came, when the Babylonians later on invaded the Judeans, because the Assyrians did, the Babylonians came and destroyed the temple, then the family of Moses fled, was taken, they say in a mystical terminology, like taken away mm -hmm. and put, yeah. in, put, in a, put in a secret location. They in a spaceship. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> they say beyond the Sabathian River, which is this river that like basically throws up rocks six days a week where they can't cross it. And on the seventh day, the rocks stop, but it's Shabbat, so they can't cross it because Shabbat is a day of rest. And they have to stay hidden in this location for thousands of years until the end time. And when, when the time is right, they're going to come back and they're going to have all the information that's going to liberate humanity and like get us back into the brains. Like they're the holders of the ancient information that never like got tainted. So somewhere there's, they exist. But believe it or not, there have been letters and attempts to find them in the last thousands and two thousand years with different explorers. But there was a map that Hitler had in World War II, Adolf Hitler, where he was looking for these people. And he had a map where they were, had a location that he was seeking. And that map after World War II made it into the hands of a group of Jewish philanthropists in New Jersey and they had sent a recon team to that location to search it out. Their stories published. I've interviewed someone who was on that expedition. They believe they know where it is and they have all the signs and everything lines up. You can't get there by car. You have to park your car and then hike and travel for a few weeks and go on donkeys and trails. But the Chinese government's actually blocking the roads to get there right now to this, this location. You cannot get there and they're, they've tried bribing and et cetera, and et cetera. But there is a speculated location where they may be found right now based on Hitler's maps, which now has been, the map has been passed into one of the, one of my rabbis. So I've, I've seen it. I've, I've been in meetings where we've had historians and travelers, you know, in monks, you know, pointing on map locations on maps going through, you know, so I, I'm not going to lie to you, you know, sometimes at 4am when I can't sleep, I'm going on Google Earth and I'm, I'm going into the Himalayas and I'm searching for like little campsites and, uh, and Wow. Wow, that is amazing. Do you believe in past lives, like reincarnation? Oh, past life, yes, 1,000%. One, 1, um, oh. The Hebrew word for it. I'm called, so uh, Jewish. Yilu. That's it. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. Is 100% is a, the soul cycles, reincarnates. We believe most humans alive today are from reincarnations, yet there is a concept of a new soul that can get forged also. So there could be someone that was a brand new soul that had come down 
And it's basically we're coming back to do something, to rectify something for a purpose. You know, there's a purpose for us coming back. When I remember when I said when all the sages got to Tzvat in the 1400s, all these tablets, yeah. Yeah. They, wrote, they wrote down in the 1400s called the Book of Reincarnations, where they'll list all the biblical figures and show you who is reincarnation of who. And not only show it to you, they'll show you within the verses of the Torah where it's alluded to and how it's all mathematically like showing the, the weaving of the soul. Yeah, exactly. That was Is there in. a chain in a block? Like everyone agreed? It, not only everyone agreed, when this was written down in the 1400s, it was the, it was the most agreed upon thing that was ever written down in the 2000 year history of the Jewish Shut people. Shut up. But the name of the person that revealed all this information that was unanimously blocked in by every single Jew on entire planet Earth, his name was the Arizal, A-R-I-Z-A-L. He would be considered the most mystical Jew of the last 2,000 oh, yeah. years, lived yeah. in the 1400s in Sfat. He wrote down the Book of Reincarnation, and it's a fascinating read where you can literally see from the basic verses of the Torah where they're showing you who soul had to come down for what purpose and why, and he weaves it all throughout. He was able to look at people back then and let you know who you were reincarnation of and what you had to do to fix your mission. He, and it's not like we had a couple of those every here and there. He was, he was just in his own league. It was a crazy That's time. Very mystical. Spirituality. You got to look into the wonderful stories. I'm yeah. going to. For sure. I did watch some of your interview. I actually watched a lot of it with Wesley Muhammad. Oh, man. Yeah. No, I learned so much. But I was, I, you guys were talking about race, color of skin, and how it changed in the different scriptures and, and, and texts that kind of confuse people. I feel like a lot of your beautiful message in all of this, and that is, you know, the unifying and the oneness is getting lost with some people. Why is it ruffling so many feathers? Think about the African-American community, I'll say very quickly, because it's just so mind-blowing also, is that the largest tribe in Africa that claims to be from the children of Israel, the lost tribes, is the Igbo tribe, numbering 40 million people. Now, the Igbo tribe made up around 20 to 25% of the transatlantic slave trade. That means a lot of the African-Americans that came to this country from the ships as slaves came from the one tribe in Africa, the largest tribe that has the Israelite DNA in them. And that's why you're starting to see a major spiritual revolution amongst African-Americans claiming to be from the children of Israel. You know, rappers like Kendrick Lamar and Kanye West said it, NBA players like Amari Stoudemire. It's just becoming very common. And they're actually tracing their genetics back to this one tribe. I get why a, a dark-skinned person can't really vibe with a white-skinned guy so easily because of the trauma. But because, you know, I have a lot of patience and I have a lot of love. I'm willing to go into the room with them and hear that out and take that abuse and take that hate because I understand it's where it's coming from. I'm not really a devil, but I understand why you think I'm a devil. But let's still talk about this, you know, and uh, and then we go in there and we talk about it. There's just layers of insanity and we're just trying to get to the common core of humanity and love and we just got to go through each one. But um, that conversation that you referenced was like four hour, four and a half hours of some strange back and forths, but at the end of the day, um, I, I, I liked a, it. Oh, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Yeah, I was fascinated. And it seemed like he thinks that like God is like a physical body. And and he meant, I don't I don't know if you guys were talking about something about blue, um, and maybe it was a light shining on, and maybe he thought that you know God was like this black man. Yeah, he was trying to say that God is a, is a black man. Yeah. yeah. And I was trying to say that we exist in this dream world, like 
we don't put those terminologies on God. So whatever, whatever it is, it's something much deeper than what we're trying to make it out to be. Yeah. I believe that the African-American uh, population will be responsible for helping save the population somehow. So I, I really, I put a lot of hope and faith in their healing and their, turn, you know, coming together and uniting for goodness. I just want to say, I think it's very um, admirable. And I also think more people need to do what you do. And that is to sit down and have those hard conversations. Um, they're not easy, especially a four and a half hour one. I can imagine you were really fatigued after that one. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was just listening after two hours. I was like, I need a break. I feel like I need a cigarette yeah. and one of your fears you were talking about and I don't even drink. Yeah. 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 Tell us about your ancient recipe beer that you make on this holy land. Amazing. Well, basically, just in short, um, I wanted to get, uh, I had a vision to get land in Israel. I didn't know why exactly. Now I kind of know more why I was supposed to where I need to, but I just knew I had to. And I didn't even know how. I was just a young boy. Not, I didn't come from crazy means, you know. I had to work for my food. But uh, you know, so how do you just buy a you know million dollar piece of land in Israel? Um, but I had learned about you know this power of manifestation and etc. But when I was in Sfat, living in that cave, I came across an ancient text that gave me a secret piece of advice that would guarantee I would get land in Israel if I followed this advice. So I said, hey. Let's do it. Let's see what happens if you follow. And the advice was pretty simple. It's pretty smooth advice. Nothing too crazy. Who was and, it from? Uh, a spirit guy or? No, no. It was from a text that was written part of this blockchain, as we mentioned. You actually, uh, wow, that's super cool. It was a piece of uh, information that was passed down and peer reviewed and ver verified. And everyone said yes to it. You could spend a lifetime trying to pour through all these texts. No one could just, you know, you have to find these stuff still. It's, the amount of texts out there that are on this block are mind-boggling. They fill up libraries of texts. But there are people today who are alive who know every one of them by heart, inside and out. That's, that's also phenomenon. But the piece of advice said that there's such a word in Hebrew called tishuka, which is a desire, a yearning. And it says that the mother calf has more of a yearning to give the baby calf milk more than the baby calf wants the milk. So if you think about it for a second, you would think the baby calf wants the milk more. No, but the mother wants to give it more than the baby calf wants. So it's saying basically the heavens, God wants to give us more than we want to receive. We just don't know how to tap into that flow. But if we learned how to open up channels to bring that down, instantaneous it would almost be. So this advice said, it doesn't, God's not going to bless you. He'll bless your handiwork. You know, you always hear people are complaining like, Oh, how come God, you never bless me? Where's my blessing? So God hypothetically would respond and say, you didn't make something for me to bless. Make a, make a vessel and I'll bless you. And so this advice says, create a vessel, create an entity, create something that could receive blessing. Whatever it is, doesn't matter, just create something. Create it with a group of people who are like-minded and have unconditional love for each other. That means no matter what, they will show love and respect and, and be kind towards each other and have the goal intention somehow to settle and get land in Israel. You follow those three things, it's guaranteed. You know, so I sit down with my friends, we're hanging out and we say, hey guys, what are we gonna do? Let's come up with an idea. Boom, first idea, let's make a brewery in Israel. We're like, let's do it. And you know, so we fly to Israel, we start looking for land to build a brewery. Well, you know, after a few months of traveling around, we heard that these two tribes from the lost tribes of Israel, and that was the first time I really heard about it, lost tribes of Israel, what are you guys talking about? Yeah, these guys from Ethiopia, from Africa are in Israel now, and these guys from India, 
from the jungles are in Israel right now and they're Jewish now and they came from the lost tribes, guess what? They have beer recipes that they brought back with them. I'm like, son of a gun, you know, like, <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. So yeah. I stopped the first Ethiopian I saw on the street and I was like, oh, excuse me, are you from the Ethiopian lost tribe community? He's like, yes, I am. I was like, perfect. Do you have, uh, first of all, I gave him a hug, you know, I was like, welcome. Bro. Yeah. I said, do you have a tribal leader I could be in touch with? And he said, yeah, sure. And he gave me the chief Ethiopian uh, tribal leader's number. Next thing you know, I called the chief Ethiopian tribal leader and I'm like, hey, we're looking to make this beer recipe. We want to scale it up. So that's what we did. And uh, they're happy to teach us the tribes. And we worked together with them in scaling it up and turning it into a standardized commercial recipe. And we called it Lost Tribes Beverage. I'm actually uh, sipping one right now. Wow. Wandering, wandering yeah. since 722 BCE. The Lost Tribes Beer Company was actually 100% somehow responsible for somehow leading us to a place where we did end up getting a large plot of land in Israel, uh, which is in the opinion, uh, according to ancient uh, Judean thought, if the Garden of Eden was located in Israel, it's located basically where our land is. And we are now looking to create a location where we're going to be planting plants from healing medicinal plants from all these different tribes around the world and creating a space for healing where people can come and work on themselves and neurological resets and, uh, and experience the self and go beyond. Mm. And so that's where it becomes like very humanitarian. What does a community look like? What are humans supposed to be doing when we band together? And the, and the first step is, you know, to be sane and safe. Like you mentioned, all the chemicals in us and all the things in us, uh, people have to work nine to five to pay for their oil and gas that's fighting wars in there. So we have to like, pull back from a lot of these things and rebuild the sense of a community. But if we can do that on an organized grid, an organized platform in unison with people around the world, that's how you can make change very quickly. So um, that's why we have land in the north. We're looking to figure out the most optimal way to combine electricity production, water filtration, food systems, you know, technology to organize two to 300 people together in a plot of land where we don't need a lot of middlemen for our resources. When you're calling on people to come forth and to, to put themselves on this high tribe map, do they have like DNA testing that they have to do? Uh, we're not even remotely concerned about if they are if yeah. they're not, because part of the legend is when they do come back, they bring everyone else with them. So okay. who wants, you know, whoever wants to come on board, come on board. I love it. Okay. And then it's not a religion, you know, we're not making a religion here. We're just making a platform where humans could unite for sanity. Okay. Okay. So I thought you were trying to like actually track where these um, lost tribes had gone based off of this map. Well, the, the two go hand in hand. Like I said, when the lost tribes return, they bring everyone with them. Okay. So I'm like, so let's take advantage of the fact that we have a hundred million people who want to unite with us let's build a platform where they come on and that's the mechanism United. I gotcha. but the nature of the platform will allow anyone to take advantage of it i love yeah. it okay and then i just wanted to talk about something that i absolutely love we all like need to activate ourselves to play our role how you you can help kill this ego and then the creator can align with us to help us play out his agenda i loved how you said that in one of the videos i was watching did i screw it up could you say it in your own words <laughs> No, that was, that was great. I think that was really good. But at the end of the day, you just have to look at it as there's these highways, you know, that these, these like piping tunnels from these higher levels down to us. And it's automatically flowing no matter what, but there, we may be creating clogs that don't allow it to reach us. So it's like, when you're like in a room, that's a light room. Let's say I put my hand over my eyes. I'm like, wow, it's so dark. No, take your hand off. You're actually, it's actually light. 
what's blocking people from receiving that most often is simply the ego, is them, is them being a me, I, me, what I deserve, what I am. And the way you treat the world is the way the world will treat you, you know? So if you're walking and you see uh, like a worm trying to cross the sidewalk and it's so hot outside and you see he's not even going to make it, he's going to melt, you know, you take a little stick and you just put it under the worm and you bring him to the other side, that does something in the universe where now you who are, I'm considered the little worm trying to cross the road. I'm nothing more than a little worm is King David said in Psalms, he refers to himself as just a worm, you know, I'm just this worm. So, so too, the universe can have compassion on me and, and help me get to where I have to go. So it's a, it's, it's a process of giving and getting. So it's like, um, I don't know if you guys remember the first version of computers, it was like DOS, you know, MS-DOS, you would type in a few commands, then a lot of things would happen. So based on how we interact with the universe, the universe is going to interact back with us. And based on how the universe interacts with us, it's trying to communicate to you what you need to work on. Like, what are you doing that's egotistic, that's blocking you from coming, you know? You know, with there being more animal versus soul, like you always want to have like the ratio of like how animalistic am I? Uh, versus being how soul am I? And then based on that, like that's what you're bringing down. But I'd say the best advice to give anyone who wants to open up their paths and open up their karma or whatever they want to call it to find themselves is just to be extremely compassionate and, and loving towards all reality and all things. And then all things and all reality will be loving and compassionate towards you. And if reality has compassion on you, it'll feel bad enough to tell you who you are. What was what was the name of the um, sage in your ancestral lineage? His name was Rabbi Eliyahu Kramer. Did you ever uh, consider maybe your reincarnation of him? <laughs> well, there's no, well, there's no question because I'm from him. I already have some of his genetic stamps. So yeah. to a degree yeah. that, that, yeah, they're there. I did see like one of these Kabbalistic guys one time and they, and they told me that I had a new soul. Maybe you're Palladian <laughs> or something. You know, prior to Moses writing a book, I mean, you know, they looked to the stars. Same with the Pleiades. Uh, we teach when the, the sages in the blockchain of the sages of, Is of Israel teaches the name of the Baal Turim. It was written a thousand years ago that when the flood of Noah happened, one star was taken from the constellation Pleiades and moving a little bit over to the right. And that caused the great floods from the heavens. So you know, obviously there's a connection. There you between, go. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a connection between the stars and us. Yeah. Um, God tells Abraham to look into the stars. And at that time, all the commentators say that's when God told Abraham astrology. And the gematria, the numerical value of that whole work, of that whole verse equals um, astronomy. So it teaches you like it's embedded in it. Wow. You could look into the stars and see the future and see what's going on. But there's one thing we teach, which is really important amongst the children of Israel that the children of Israel are beyond the constellations. We are beyond it. You ever hear someone say the word mazel tov? It's like the yeah. most iconic Jewish thing. What does yeah. mazel tov mean? No idea. Like a fun word to say. <laughs> yeah, mazel tov, based on how it's used, we would think it means like good luck or congratulations. Yeah, like a celebration. The word, the word mazel means a drip. A drip. Um, and tov means a good drip. And what are we referring to? And by the way, the word nozzle, like the same thing, they say could come from the word nozzle, like a drip, like from one, it means a drip from a higher source to a lower source. That's what the word nozzle means. So wow. we believe your nozzle tov, you have good nozzle means you had a good drip. It means from those constellations dripped down something good on you. But 
we always teach that the children of Israel are beyond the mazel. Like we can reconfigure the stars. Like we don't, the stars don't tell us the story. We yeah. tell the stars the story. Wow. That's super cool. There's so much. There's so much. Ooh, there's so much. Yes. I already know this is going to send me and Shanna on a major journey. Uh, we have so much to learn. And I think of all of our guests we've ever had on, like I'm mind blown and ready to learn more. So thank you for that. I was very happy to talk to you guys. I feel like, you know, this may not even be the first conversation we had on a reincarnation level. Maybe we're going to be a couple hundred years ago in Casablanca talking about it. Who knows? Um, <laughs> and now it's time for Break That Shit Down. Wow, such a great thing. The most important thing right now, I kind of like touched on it before, that if I would leave anyone like one sense of something, is to really believe that you have technology in your mind that can cause change in the world. And don't sell yourself short that if you will, or if you think something, if you focus on something, you could actually contribute towards that thing. Wherever you put your mind, that's where you are. So I would just remind everyone to, you know, shoot for the stars, go big or go home type of energy. Because if someone told me if I could will whatever I want, so I'm be like, all right, I'm going to will $5 million for myself. Like, no, Harry, will $5 million for the world. You'll be included in that, you know? So at the end of the day is, you know, use the technology of our brains to, to wish big, wish large. And believe it or not, what I'm under the impression of, if we wish nice enough or well enough, we can make the creator of the universe emotional also and bring tears to that side and, and have bring down mercy from the heavens onto humanity. And that's what we need to do. We need to plead for the universe to have mercy on us and uh, to redeem humanity, to bring us back to the Eden of the mind and the garden and the location. And in that note, we should be, uh, we say we should be worthy speedily in our days. Amen. That's what we always say. We should be worthy speedily in our days. Thank you. Thank you for your time. <laughs> Thank you yeah. for sharing. I want to give um, a last minute shout out to my good friend, uh, Daniel Geffen. He created this platform called Podbookers and yeah. he got in touch with me and he was like, yo, this is, you, you got some crazy stuff going on. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't, you know, it is crazy. He's like, he told me about the Podbookers website and I just went on it. And like, obviously you have to like search for people to reach out to. And I'm typing in all like the keywords that I'm interested in. You guys like came up for every like different keyword. I was like, all right, these, these are my girls. So I'll just reach out. <laughs> so shout out to Daniel Geffen on the Genius app that he created. I hope it's very successful and he sells it for tons of money one day. And he uses that money to help save the world. In the meanwhile, he's helping save the world by connecting people that need to meet each other. So we could do things we have to do. So just shout out to him. A lot of love. Gosh, we interviewed him. He's been sending us guests now for like over a year and a half and always amazing guests. We were going to actually message him and ask him if he knew you. I love it. Synchronicity. So if more people want to um, learn about you, if our listeners want to dive in, of course, you're on YouTube. Where else would you suggest they go? Right. So um, my, my videos are on YouTube under a channel called Woke Courses. But most of my stuff I've consolidated on a timeline where you can just see some of my activities at rabbiharry.com. And over there, you can find information to reach out to me. And it's better to be viewed on a laptop because you can scroll across and see some of the lectures I gave, some of the events I've hosted with Lost Tribes. 
Uh, right now, most of the data on the website's hidden for security reasons for villages, but if someone wants to put their village on our network, or even as an individual, it's itribe.us, I-T-R-I-B-E.us. You could log in as a village or as an individual, and if you get enough people in your village, you can start to get access to resources like a digital wallet, crowdfunding capabilities, technology grants, et cetera. So that's that. And I'm on Facebook, Rabbi Harry Rosenberg with a Z, Instagram, Rabbi Harry, and I'm generally happy to talk to humans, so let's be in touch. I'm a fan. Thanks, I appreciate you guys. You guys filled me up with confidence today on the call. So thank you so much. Yes, you're awesome. Thank you so, so much. All right, Have a good sisters, night. Stay strong. Thanks for being with us today. We hope you will come back next week. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate, like, and subscribe. Thank you. We rise to lift you up. Thanks for listening.